All right, guys, this is episode number three of the Performance Dietitian Podcast. I'm Susan Lopez, and today with us is Jess Mora. So Jess is an Army dietitian, and she's going to be sharing some of the unique experiences that she has had as a military dietitian. She's also going to talk about what it means for her to be a triathlete and a triathlon coach. She's going to discuss some of the techniques that she uses as a coach to train her clients, not just with nutrition, but with mindset as well. I know you guys are going to really enjoy what she has to say, so let's just get started. Welcome to the podcast, Jess. So why don't we just start off by hearing about your career progression from becoming a military dietitian to where you are now as a triathlon coach uh, and as a nutrition coach. Sure. Well, I didn't start in dietetics when I started college. I actually started in physical therapy. And I was a year from finishing the physical therapy program when I realized that all the electives that I was taking, all the electives I wanted to take, They were all nutrition-related, and by the time I would have taken all the classes I wanted to take, I would have had a nutrition degree. So I decided to just switch my major and went from physical therapy right into dietetics. And um, at the time, I was married to a service member, so internships were kind of a difficult thing to navigate because he was going to get stationed someplace, and um, we didn't know where. So I skipped uh, well, I applied with the understanding that I knew I wasn't going to get into the place that I applied because I knew I would not get an internship um, or I couldn't accept one because I didn't know where we were going. So um, I headed to Colorado and I worked for a year in a dish room and then I applied a second time. And that was the year, this is totally dating myself, but that was the year that they switched over from the mailed packets to the computer application. And because I was no longer in school, I no longer had someone walking me through the process, and I messed up somewhere along the way, and my name was actually dropped from the list of candidates. So I did not get an internship my second year either. It wasn't until my third year that I actually got an internship, and I ended up doing a distance program, and I got my clinical and community rotations at the Army facility in Colorado Springs at Evans Army Community Hospital. And that was really my first like thought that maybe I would want to join the military. Um, my father is a 20-plus year veteran of the Marine Corps, so the military has always been a part of my life. I always really wanted to join. I didn't realize that dietitians were really um, a part of the military, and I really didn't think that it was something that I would be able to do. But once I saw uh, the very unique job about um, what it is that an army dietitian does. So on the outside, dietitians tend to do just one thing. We're in the food service, we're in clinical, we're working for a school, we do one thing. But in the military, they do it all. So they get management experience very early on in their careers. Um, you know, they're dealing with bariatric surgery for a patient in the morning, and then in the afternoon, they're going and approving menus for the child care center. So they're really doing a lot. It's really a great experience. Um, so I started looking into joining, and my process for joining was very different since I was already a credentialed dietitian. The Army does have their own internship program, which is a, uh, a coordinated program, so you get a master's degree along with your internship, 
and they tend to recruit uh, for for interns. So they don't recruit dietitians necessarily. So at the time, it was actually very rare the way that I came in to the military. I also didn't have a master's degree at the time, which it was not required. As we all know, at this point, it's not required to have a master's degree to be a dietitian, but um, it will be soon. Uh, so it was not required, but it was highly recommended that I not even try applying without a master's degree. So fortunately, my experience with working in the military facility to that point uh, gave me a little bit of a leg up, and I was accepted. So moving forward, we, the Army is looking to expand um, the number of dietitians within the organization. And so they are going to be looking for far more individuals like myself who are already dietitians and uh, want to come into the military and work in the military. Now, they're doing a lot of, of contracting out for those as well, too. So the military is bringing in a lot of athletic trainers. They're bringing in mm -hmm. sports psychologists, even dietitians to really work with not just their special operations group, but with the regular soldiers at the battalion level, too. Yeah, it's a really interesting time to be a dietitian in the military. Um, you know, to this point, we work primarily in hospitals. And now, like you said, they're pushing us out to the battalions. So it's actually a very interesting job moving forward. It's going to be a lot more of a blend of performance nutrition, community nutrition, but then also one-on-one -on -one clinical work with the people within your battalion. So that dietitian is going to be part of the medical assets of that battalion, which to this point, like you said, special operators and the special operation community is the only one who really had those organic assets to their unit. And now um, there's 12 units currently that it's kind of a pilot program that have dietitians attached to them. And the plan is that I don't know if it's all battalions or just the um, more so your infantry, so more your, your grunts who do a lot of physical mm -hmm. work. If it's more so those types of battalions that will really have a dietitian attached to them, that I couldn't tell you. But I know that is the direction that we're moving. So it's going to be very interesting here very soon. Okay, so I don't want to cut you off. But since we're on the subject of the Army kind of moving to a smarter way of um, taking care of their soldiers, I know that the new physical fitness uh, test has started as well. Um, so have you had any exposure to that? And then we'll, we'll kind of get back to your backstory. But have you had the sure. opportunity to either see the test being given, taken the test yourself? What are your thoughts on that? I haven't seen it be given yet. And I actually have not taken it myself. I've done some train up for it. Um, I actually, at my old job that I just left, um, I did create a training plan for my section to uh, really train for the ACFT. Um, and from what I hear from people who have taken it, it's not as bad as they thought. So one of the concerns was, you know, we're moving from a fairly simple test of push-ups, sit-ups, running, to now something that's much more high intensity and has weight loads associated with it. So the concern was higher injury rates, which is the, um, you know, Chief of the Army's number one priority is readiness, and injuries are not quite congruent with readiness. So there's a lot of talk about how the heck is this going to work. Um, and it's also a test that, uh, you know, for people who are familiar with the military, the, uh, I guess, culture is that people show up for their, uh, their APFT or their PT test or, you know, different services call it different things. And 
tend to puke afterwards because a lot of people don't train regularly and they just show up just to pass that darn thing. Sure. They don't get kicked out. So with this test, it's going to be a lot harder to you know really show up and BS your way through it. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to be training regularly to do very well mm-hmm. on it. Um, I think a lot of people could probably pass okay, but definitely an increased risk of injury if you know people are not training regularly. So it'll... I think it's a better measure of the fitness that we're looking for as far as um, a deployed environment, in my opinion. Um, Now, there's also some controversy about do we really need someone like a physician doing that kind of test? These are decisions that are way above my pay grades. Sure. (laughs) But I don't know. I don't really have an answer for that. I would say my argument for that would probably just – my opinion would probably be like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're deployable, um, there may come a time where you may have to, um, you know, deploy your weapon, um, you know, where you may come under fire and you have to be ready to uh, physically move with the units around you. So I would say yes, absolutely. And my understanding of it is it's, it's gender neutral. Is that right? That's what I've seen so far, yes, is that the scoring um, does not have, uh, you know, you currently have the female scale versus the male scale with the current test. And from what I've seen, there is not a gender scale on this test. So, I, I, which I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of controversy and politics surrounding that topic, <laughs> but I think that's probably a good call. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah, for sure. So there's a, a deadlift, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a buddy drag. Yep. And, and yep. if I'm if I'm messing up these names, please correct me. There's a. Oh, you're fine. Yeah. There's okay. a there's a um, med- medicine ball toss, correct? Yep. That's the one that tends to get a lot of people. Really? Is a medicine ball toss? Yeah, it's very um, technique based. Is what I've been told. Okay. And uh, there's still a two mile run. There is. And it's at the very end. Okay. <laughs> We're going to gas you out on everything else, and then we're going to make you run two miles. Right. And then is it either a pull-up or a bent arm hang? So it's a um, a bent arm. So you try to get your knees to your elbows. Okay. And you're holding on to the bar like this. So instead of like a pull-up, you're holding on like this. Mm-hmm. And you have to um, pull yourself to 90-degree angle and then get your knee to your elbow. Okay. Which is very difficult for a lot of people. Trainable but difficult from the start. Okay. So a really different from the push-up sit-up two-mile run that they're doing now. So that's going to be really interesting to see the how that plays out and what that involves into. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's get back to you now that we've talked that over a little bit. So um, you're already a dietitian, got into the military, um, and then started working as an Army dietitian. So let's go from there. Yeah, so my first assignment was Hawaii. I was really fortunate. Um, And my time there, um, you know, I feel like I got to do a lot. I joined the military with some, I had, you know, my advice to people was always join the military with a plan. Like some people join with a passion, which is great. But the fact of the matter is the military lifestyle can be difficult. And sometimes you are given assignments that you don't want. Sometimes you are overworked. That's just the nature of being in the military. So my advice to anyone joining is, Know what it is you want to get out of it so you have a good idea of when your exit point is, which is kind of where I'm at right now, which um, I'll get to that. But um, So I had an idea of what it is that I wanted to get out of my time in the military, and then if I felt that um, 
I saw further reasons to stay in, further opportunities that I was passionate about, then those would be reasons that I would stay. And so luckily, you know, I got my master's degree. I was fortunate enough to have um, some of it paid for by the military. Um, I was able to get my CSSD. So I was given the experience that I needed to get my CSSD. I did gain management experience, which in our field can be very hard to get early in your career. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm 31. I've been a dietitian since 2013. Mm -hmm. So to have management experience in my first five years, I felt like was uh, a really big win. Um, and I've worked in numerous areas. I was chief of an outpatient clinic. So I got um, experience running a clinic. I got food service experience. Um, I got to do some cool army stuff like run a range and I got to help run um, what we call the GAFD, which is the German Armed Forces Proficiency Badge. Mm -hmm. So I got to run and plan these things that as a civilian, I normally, you know, those are skill sets I normally wouldn't get to practice or fine tune. Um, lots of public speaking. So lots of really good opportunities that I felt like really molded me as a professional. And my time in Hawaii, I mean, it was just Phenomenal. I mean, I don't know how you can live in Hawaii and not love it. <laughs> I've seen your posts and your stories, and the pictures look like something off of a postcard. It's fantastic. I miss it so much. So, <laughs> so for those people who don't know, um, kind of that are familiar with military speak, can you explain uh, what running a range means? Because I think people will find that really interesting. Oh, sure. Sorry. Yeah, so it's, um, so, you know, in the military, you have to be able to shoot, move, and communicate. So shooting is something that certain people uh from it, medical is very different from the rest of the army. So the rest of the army usually has to have, um, they have to qualify at the range every so often. For some people, it's every six months. For some, it's once a year. For medical, it's really based on need. So people tend to think of um, this is getting into a lot of detail, but people tend to think of military as you definitely deploy, and usually a unit deploys together. Mm -hmm. um, in the medical field right now, because we're stationed at hospitals. That's not really the case. So only those individuals who are attached to units that deploy. So they work at the hospital, but they're um, if that unit deploys, they go with. Mm -hmm. So on paper, they are with that unit, but they are working at the hospital. So those are the we call those profist slots. Mm -hmm. So those are the individuals who need to qualify. And because we have so many individuals, and range time is something that is kind of fought over. There's limited ranges. There's limited amounts of time. Um, you know, you gotta, it's a lot that goes into a range um, to go shoot. So we only send the individuals that we need to be qualified. So um, so I ran an M16 range, which is a rifle, and we had oh my goodness, it was I want to say 200, maybe 300 people go for that range. Wow. All individuals who um, had the potential to deploy, and then some who just, if we had open slots, they came and joined us because we had the ammo to let them shoot. So that's what, and there's, as you can imagine, safety is of the utmost importance, um, making sure that you have a good um, organization of how people move, where the ammo is kept, making sure everything is just as safe as it can possibly be, and having complete control over the individuals who are walking through that range. Is um, you know, definitely an experience you wouldn't get as a civilian dietitian. Definitely so that not. That's pretty cool. That is really cool. Um, so you've been in the military for how long? I will be, it's about three and a half years. My four-year mark will be in April. Okay. 
Um, and then now you are uh, also newly certified as a triathlon coach. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. But you've been doing triathlons yourself for how long? It's been about four, four or five years now that I've been doing triathlons. Okay. And you just recently finished one in Hawaii, right? I did. Yeah. So that one is called, um, well, it's Ironman Hawaii 70.3, but it's uh, known as Honu, which Honu in Hawaiian is turtle. Um, there's turtles all over the place where this race is held. So it's known as, as Honu. So uh, what I'd really love to do is kind of hear about your experience getting ready for, you know, a triathlon uh, that size, uh, especially the nutrition piece of it. And I, and I'd love to hear about, you know, how you get your clients ready for that. And what are some of the, I guess, biggest things that you work with those clients on? Um, so, for instance, you know, if you have a client who knows that they want to do a triathlon of that size, I imagine that there's planning that goes on at least a year in advance. Let's see. Well, how I got started in triathlon was uh, I was getting ready to join the military. And this is about the time that the first females went through ranger school, which um, range, a ranger tab is pretty coveted and it's a very difficult school. And I've been reading up on some trainers who specialize in um, tactical and special operations training. And what they have said is that individuals who train for triathlons tend to do very well in the school. Now, looking back on that now, no, with the knowledge set that I have now, that doesn't surprise me. Um, because you have endurance athletes who, um, I know this is a subject you kind of want to touch on today, but um, metabolic flexibility mm -hmm. and um, having the ability to utilize carbs and fats for fuels uh, efficiently and well. Um, these are individuals who their training lends itself to that. And for those people who don't know what ranger school is, you are you tend to lose a lot of weight in ranger school because there are some days when you're only fed one meal a day. Mm -hmm. And the physical demands are very high. So that's what originally got me interested in triathlon was I'm planning on going to ranger school. I never did, by the way. I never got the opportunity. But um, I would love to go through ranger school, and I want to train up so that I am physically ready for it. So I started with actually a duathlon. I remember the first, <laughs> I remember the first time I signed up. I, I've always been a strong swimmer, but I've never really like trained for swimming. So when they asked me what my 300-meter time was, I mean, it's 45 minutes sounds reasonable. <laughs> like, and I show up for the race, and they put me on the most shallow part of the pool right next to the lifeguard. <laughs> and I was like, well, that makes sense. <laughs> the only way I know now about that distance is how it should not take that long. <laughs> okay. So I've come a long way. <laughs> but it was a duathlon. Um so it was a swim and a, a run, I think, in Arizona. And um, and then there was another duathlon later that year that was a run, bike, run. And then eventually I got myself into an actual triathlon once one was offered in the area and just kind of took off from there. So um, but as far as like getting ready for one, especially um, half Ironman or a full Ironman, um, so Technically, about 24 to 26 weeks is all that's needed to train for that distance race. However, I think anyone probably knows that you don't go from couch potato to Ironman 
in 24 weeks. I mean, that's considering someone who has been training at least some. Sure. You know, we start you off. Um, there's some kind of foundation of fitness there. So, for, yes, for somebody who maybe is just exercising recreationally, maybe doesn't have um, really any endurance training under their belt, I would definitely say six months building a good endurance foundation prior to even starting that that actual training for the race would be um, definitely um, recommended in my book. For sure. sure. Mm -hmm. So now when you say kind of talking about, you know, having that six months of good endurance training under their belt, you know, a lot of people I hear them talk about, you know, they'll start with like a mini try and then like an Olympic try and then they'll kind of work themselves up to the Ironman. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Yeah, I think that's a great way to do that. Um, especially the triathlon where, it's not like running where you just throw on your running shoes and you kind of go. I mean, there's definitely some mechanics and form that can go into running, but for the most part, um, as long as you're logging the time and the miles, you know, people are usually all right. Um, but for triathlon, there's a lot to know because now you're switching from, you know, three different exercise modalities and you have to make the switch from the swim to the bike to the run. And you have to figure out how to fuel yourself. You have to know what to do if you get a flat tire. I mean, there's a lot more technically that goes into this kind of race. And just for your first triathlon, something like a transition can be really overwhelming if you've never done it before. You definitely want to experience that in a small race rather than something big like an Ironman. You definitely want to go through a transition or some smaller races first. Um, oh, but also just understand the logistics of the race. I mean, you show up and... You know, you have buoys in the water if it's an open water swim and realizing, I think this is probably a, a frequent rookie mistake, is not realizing that open water requires sighting of your buoy. Um, so much, so many of us are so used to swimming in a pool where you have a line and you have a wall and you just flip turn if you do flip turns and you just go back and forth, back and forth. You don't really think about having to lift your head and look and practice that skill. So I've had a number of people show up, you know, tell me about their first race day, and they're like, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do my swim in the time that I wanted because I was constantly stopping, looking for the buoy, and then continuing to swim on. So little things like that, it's worthwhile to get some experience with actual racing under your belt before tackling something like an Ironman. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what about the nutrition? So you talked about, you know, having – um, you know, kind of figuring out how to fuel your race needs during an, an event like that. So let's talk about maybe you first, and then let's talk about maybe some clients that you've worked with. So how did you go about yeah. really figuring out what that nutrition was going to look like for you for, let's say, your most recent race? Oh, let's see. Well, I like to use the Infinite products. Um, I am an ambassador for Infinite. Uh, and what I love about them, um, at the time I had hired a coach and now I coach myself. But, and she was the one who kind of turned me on to this product. It's an all-in-one product. So it's a powder, and you mix it with your water. And what I had learned to do was create what was called a six-hour bottle. Mm -hmm. So this is a bottle with six hours worth of fuel in it. And it's very concentrated. So the idea here is that you are taking it with water to dilute it. For me, I've always experienced a little bit of GI upset. So that's where I tend to spend a lot of my focus. Um, I actually do fairly well, what I would call under fueling, which doesn't, isn't usually recommended, but there's this weird thing about once you get into like ultra endurance at 
and it, this is a, this goes against the guidelines, but just from what I've seen and what I've experienced myself as an athlete, um, when you get into ultra endurance, the guidelines are really just suggestions and really what's going to work for you and the reality of the situation is what we go with. So I found that in the last half of the race, so for my full Ironman, I hardly fueled at all during the marathon, which is definitely not recommended, but my stomach was so upset from taking in so much fuel during the bike. And then I made the mistake of trying to take something solid. I mean, even though I do this for, as a job, I, I still make mistakes. Sure. I tried to take something solid after the bike thinking, okay, it's been so many hours. I'm hungry. I'm going to take this while I'm walking through the transition and let it digest a little bit and then start running. And it just, it didn't work. <laughs> so my stomach was so upset throughout the run that I hardly took any fuel during the marathon. And, but what I realized I did fine. So what I realized was for the last half of that, if I fuel really well on the bike with something that I know is not going to upset my stomach, I can just do salt and fluid and a little bit of Gatorade to get me through the marathon and I end up being okay. Mm -hmm. So this is where experience just trial and error just comes in. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously on the swim, you can't take any fuel. So my first strategy is the second I get out of the water, I take some water and I take some fuel immediately at the transition and get myself prepped for the bike. I wait a little bit on the bike, um, let my heart rate kind of become a little bit more steady. Um, the nice thing about the bike is you're not bouncing. So the likelihood that you're going to upset your stomach is lessened. Mm -hmm. So the bike is actually the best time to get your fuel because the GI upset definitely tends higher risk in the run. So the bike is really prime fueling time. And I just make sure that I stick very strictly to the timing of my fluids and my nutrition on the bike. Whenever there's an, so this is kind of my rule is anytime there is an aid station, I take a fresh thing of water, even if my water is not done yet. Mm -hmm. And I try very hard to finish that water before the next fuel station. Um, and then I keep track on my water bottle. I have marks for where like, by this many hours, I should be here. By this many hours, I should be here. And really just try to keep up on that. And then by the time I get to the run, if I feel good enough to take in some fuel, then I do. And if not, then I end up being all right. How are you figuring out kind of your carbohydrate intake during the race? Are you following just kind of like a standard 30 to 60 per hour? Or have you kind of got it yeah. down to a science now that you've got some experience? I do tend to follow more than 30, right around 60 is what I tend to aim for. And that's what I tend to aim for for most people. Um, for my athletes who maybe are not accustomed to taking in fuel, I definitely start them lower and we just practice. You can train your gut to, um, to tolerate these things. So we start much lower and we just practice getting the gut used to it. Um, but for a race situation, training in a race is a little bit different. So I tend to train low. So I tend to train with a lot less exogenous carbohydrate than I would when I'm racing. But just like that training of your gut piece there, you want to at least try to take in as much fuel as you're planning on taking on race day to make sure your gut can handle it. Um, I haven't had a situation yet where that's failed me, um, but it's going to depend on the athlete and how sensitive their gut is. You know, um, this whole exogenous carbohydrate thing, that's one of the things we can manipulate for metabolic um, flexibility. That's one of the strategies. There's a lot of other ones, but this is one strategy you can use with, with athletes. Mm -hmm. um, if you have an athlete who maybe training the gut is far more important, 
then maybe that's a strategy for metabolic flexibility that we just leave alone and we look for other opportunities to train that metabolism. Because um, gut, I mean, that's going to, that could kill somebody's race, you know, yeah. vomiting or diarrhea or nausea. It could definitely kill somebody's race. Yeah, absolutely. So when you talk about <clears throat> metabolic flexibility, there are some, um, I guess, uh, starches out there, specifically resistant starches that I have seen some racers use to help them with that metabolic flexibility. What are your thoughts kind of on that? What kind of starches or carbohydrates um, do you go towards during that race? Are we looking at like maltodextrins? Are we looking at like, you know, fructose, glucose? How do you feel about the resistant starches? Yeah, so I actually um, look for what's called multi-transportable carbohydrates. So it has all of them. Um, so maltodextrin, glucose, and fructose. Um, fructose is going to use a slightly different transporter than glucose. Again, that's something you can train your gut, though. You can get more of those transporters um, to be expressed if your body is recognizing that it needs it. Um, and that's another, so, you know, since we're talking about this nutrient periodization and metabolic flexibility, that's one of the reasons to go high carb is so that the gut is um, the gut recognizes that it needs those transporters. If we're going low carb all the time, the gut's not going to recognize the need for those transporters, and that could affect tolerance. But so I look for a product that has multiple carbohydrates, um, and I do for a race that long. This goes against conventional um, wisdom, uh, but it's well uh, respected in the uh, endurance and ultra endurance realm is the inclusion of protein. Now, traditional recommendations say don't include protein because it reduces gastric emptying and leads to an increased risk of GI upset. But for those endurance races that are that long, the protein helps uh, quench hunger. Mm -hmm. So you can't get hungry on a race that long, and the protein will stave off that hunger, but it also reduces the likelihood of burning through some, some of the muscle. It's still going to happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, for a race that long, we can't avoid it but it does help reduce some of that. So the addition of that protein is that um, saying that's going to help kind of save some of that muscle burning off. Is that because it's uh, glycogen or carbohydrates varying? Exactly. Mm -hmm. yep. So what about the nutrition then kind of leading up to the race? So you have, you know, you're working with a client, they're like maybe 24 weeks out. Um, maybe their nutrition isn't really where it needs to be kind of coming into that training program. What kind of framework do you create for that client kind of leading up to that race? You know, we always meet people where they're at. So what I tend to do first is hydration is one of the first things that I look at. If a client is not hydrating appropriately, that's the first thing I'll get on them about. The second thing will be their during training fueling. And then the third thing will be their daily diet. And I do it in that order because those are the things that are going to affect their ability to train um, the most. Now, Daily diet, this is something that we can definitely manipulate depending on the training period. So kind of my philosophy is early on in the training, the first training phase, so this is like a general prep phase. We're really just building endurance, spending a lot of time at a low intensity. We're really not doing interval work. We're, if we're lifting weights, we're lifting weights for muscular endurance, not for power or strength. So I tend to drop the carbohydrates a little bit at that point to try to drive some of those metabolic adaptations from exercise, so try to, to drive that metabolic flexibility so that I can have an athlete who comes out of that phase who is much better at utilizing both fat and carb for their metabolism. They have more mitochondria, healthier mitochondria, they have a better ability to utilize the carbohydrates that are available to their body. 
and they can they can utilize carb at a higher intensity. I'm sorry, fat at a higher intensity than they could previously. So then once we get into the second phase, which will include more high intensity, because that's part of training for a race like this is, you know, some like my Ironman was just under 14 hours. So there's no, I don't ever train 14 hours in one day. Mm-hmm. The longest training period I had training for that race was six hours, and that's on a bike. And my longest run was maybe 16 miles, which was, uh, I don't think it was quite, might have been three hours, three hours of running was the longest that I, that I trained. And those are on different days. You know, we want to make sure that we are stressing the body appropriately, and we do that through intensity rather than duration. Mm-hmm. We take it the duration as far as we can, and then we add intensity to try to stress that body. And that's a time when that individual is going to need the carbohydrates. So where I get a little bit more complex with my athletes is we start talking nutrient timing and timing carbohydrates appropriately around those workouts. I see a lot of people um, – for half Ironman and marathon training, I tend to see people risk weight gain because they uh, overcompensate for that training. So they forget to take into consideration the their pre, during, and post-workout meals or snacks or um, fueling strategies if they're tracking their food, and they fail to compensate for that or they think they're burning a lot more calories than they are. For more Ironman distance or ultramarathon type individuals, keeping weight on tends to be one of the harder things. So it depends on who you're working with about whether we're trying to manage weight and avoid weight gain or if we're trying to prevent too much weight loss. For myself, I know that um, endurance training really zaps my appetite, so this becomes a struggle that I end up eating – you know, in Hawaii, macadamia nuts were so popular. They're, like, available everywhere. In the States, they're um, very expensive to get your hands on. But I was eating – they had a small can of mac nuts that was available right next to my work. And I was eating a whole can of that every day just to keep weight on. And that was, like, an additional 1,000 calories that I was eating just because um, they were they were honey um, – they were covered in honey and – I don't know. They were sweet. They were sugary. Um was it the healthiest way to eat mac nuts? No. But when it comes to athletes, sometimes it's putting the food in them. That is the goal. Right. So that was how I was putting my weight on. And then I, right before my race, I actually went and visited my parents who were living in an RV at the time in the middle of New Hampshire, middle of nowhere, New Hampshire. And uh, the food situation was drastically different. And I can't even tell you how much weight I dropped right before my race. It was, I was really worried that it was going to affect my race, but I ended up being just fine. It's very strange, but I probably dropped like seven pounds right before my race. Sure. Which, I mean, if you don't weigh a lot to begin with, seven pounds is a pretty significant weight loss, um, yeah. <laughs> especially in a short time frame. So kind of jumping back to the metabolic flexibility that you were talking about, um, I, yeah. I I love that topic. Um, and I want to go a little bit deeper into that, if that's okay with you. So kind of explain yeah. to us um what metabolic flexibility is. And I also want to hear about how you're sort of assessing that in your clients as well, too. Is it more of just kind of like a subjective assessment or do you have some objective assessments that you can, uh, you know, at your fingertips that you can use? Like a lot of people, there's a few sports dietitians and um, conditioning coaches out there. They'll actually use uh, respiratory quotient 
um, to actually determine. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, so if I had those tools available to me, I would definitely use them, but yeah, you can, um, measure, uh, substrate utilization. Basically mm -hmm. you can put like the same mass that you would use for VO2 max testing and based on the oxygen to carbohydrate, I'm sorry, uh, carbon dioxide oxygen ratio mm -hmm. of the, of what a client is breathing out, breathing in and breathing out, breathing out, you can estimate carb or fat, mm -hmm. where we're at in carb or fat metabolism. And there's a crossing point. So the that 50, 50% is, um, you know, we're using 50% substrate uh, is carbohydrate, 50% substrate is fat. Mm -hmm. And uh, in use that system to find out where that crossover point is. Yeah. And then you can request that patient and watch that move to the right so that that indicates that a patient is using fat at higher mm -hmm. intensities now. Mm -hmm. So without having that kind of information, it is a lot more subjective. So it ends up being a lot more um, clinical judgment from what we as dietitians know about the body um, of a trained individual versus an untrained individual. So it becomes a little bit more of a subjective spectrum, I guess. So if I have an individual who is not very well trained, is perhaps overweight, and I'm looking at their diet, and it's very heavy in carbohydrates, then I'm going to assume that that's a very metabolically inflexible person, especially if we're seeing things like diabetes, prediabetes, insulin sensitivity. Those are all hints that this individual is pretty metabolically inflexible. On the other end of the spectrum, you have your, I mean, Theoretically, you could still have an athlete who's not very metabolically flexible for, you know, in, in within the context of what it is they do. You could still have an athlete who is not presenting that way, who is still um, has some room to improve in their metabolic flexibility. But typically, like your better trained athletes will have a bit more metabolic flexibility. Right. So, um, so what I, I tend to follow um, – Oh, I think his name is Bob Siebelhar. Yep, yes. so he's got a couple of books, yeah. actually. Yeah, so I follow a lot of his recommendations. Um, and, of course, you know, we all kind of do a little bit of play, depending on who it is that we're working with. There's never any, like, hard lines of how we do these things. Um, in fact, the research on nutrient periodization and metabolic flexibility is still fairly young. So, And that's what I love about sports is that we're kind of operating on the edge. You know, you have athletes who – are so in tune with their body and they notice things long before the research can confirm it and they're already doing it you're not going to stop them from doing it they're going to do it so <laughs> we just guide them in the best way possible based on our knowledge yeah and that's what's kind of fun about this field is sometimes we deviate from evidence base a little bit we try to stick as closely as we can and use our best clinical judgment but um you know there is quite a bit of deviation mm -hmm. um but so i follow some of his recommendations that you know, on the one side of the spectrum, maybe we're just cleaning up the daily diet to try to get that person to be just a bit more healthy, maybe lose a little bit of weight, um, versus like a well-trained athlete who maybe we're dipping into things like keto or intermittent fasting to really drive that um, deprivation of carbohydrate to the body during certain, during certain training sessions and phases in the training cycle. This is not something that we're using all the time, which I mean, you probably saw the article about how we're using keto for special operators or how that's going to be suggested. Yeah. So I actually just had a conversation with another dietitian um, about that, um, about yeah. how, you know, the 
the powers that be above the Navy SEALs are looking at how a ketogenic diet can potentially be used to help them stay underwater longer, um, which is kind oh, of, okay. yeah. So the, the concern is, is that when they're underwater for a longer period of time and they're oxygen deprived, is this can lead to things like seizures. And by potentially fat adapting to them, they can operate with less oxygen, stay underwater longer. The argument was, though, is that when you're fat adapted and you're using that beta oxidation for energy, um, that you're really not going to have enough oxygen available to begin with because you're, it, it's being used to break down that, that, that fat. Um, for energy. So, so kind of what are your thoughts on that? The one article I read made it sound like they were going to keep them on this keto diet long term. Mm -hmm. And that the plan was this was going to become their new dietary pattern versus just using it as a tool, which from what I had read to this point of, you know, the uses of keto for performance, it's always been used as a tool and used within the periodization of the training cycle rather than something that would be long-term mm -hmm. and become their mm -hmm. new diet, like lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So I guess that would be my question for the individuals who are putting this information out. Um, I don't know if you had that question answered in what you had read. So, yeah, I guess my concern is if you're keto adapting, and, I, and I'm just kind of over the ketogenic diet, to be perfectly honest. I think it has its place, and I think it can be used um, in active individuals and athletes in the right setting. So when you talk about periodization of nutrition, it's definitely got to be used at the right time. Um, you know, if you're ready, getting ready to go on mission tomorrow, you, you know, it's, I'm not of the opinion that you should be running a ketogenic diet up until that point, because, um, one of the things I think that people don't take into account is that when you are running a very low carbohydrate diet and you've change the way that your body utilizes insulin, it is just as hard to come off of a very low carbohydrate diet as it is to get on one just in terms of blood sugar regulation. Because if you're, um, and, and really just from personal experience, because I've run a, a couple of very low carbohydrate diets cycles before, um, coming out of those cycles, I mean, if you just go all out with your carbohydrate intake, or, you know, your your blood sugar is going to be all over the place. No way you're going to be able yeah. to perform. Um, you're definitely going to yeah. have some insulin, um, you know, hypoglycemic, you know, symptoms as well. So I just, I'm not quite sure how that would work, especially if you're going into an austere environment and your resources are limited. Um, but maybe, right. but maybe you could, you know, maybe if your resources are limited yeah. and you're fat adapted, maybe, maybe yeah. that's the key to being able to sustain. I think before they implement it, it really just needs to be studied harder and in the right way. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I think it can. Um, kind of going back to that ranger school example, that the reason uh, I think a lot of those, and I'll kind of give like my whole spiel on ranger school because it's definitely applicable to this um, this example here. Um, so ranger school, you know, you want people who can operate at a faster metabolism well keep their wits about them. So it's never, you know, in the military, it's always physical and mental performance. It's never just the physical aspect. Sports mm -hmm. as well. You know, there's certain sports where you have to be able to read the field and make snap decisions. Um, so you need that mental clarity as well. I have heard a number of people feel, I mean, I've heard two different things. Keto flu can make you feel a little bit mentally foggy. 
But then once they get through that, they feel mentally like really clear. So I mean, what we know about glucose and the brain, like I just, I'd have some questions about that, the usefulness from a mental perspective. But you know, in ranger school, because they're being deprived of food, these individuals who are metabolically flexible are used to utilizing fats for fuel tend to do better. To a point though, I mean, there is actually in research, there is a body fat percentage that is considered ideal for ranger school and that's 11%. And that's the same for operators. So I, you know, knowing what we know about how quickly people lose weight, usually water weight on the keto diet, which hydration, first thing that's gonna affect performance would be another concern I would have. So we know that like bodybuilders will use very low carb diets prior to a competition to really get that, uh, that nice uh, cut look. And they also know that they're going to lose some of their muscle once they go into cutting phase. They can't help it. So that's why they try to get as huge as they possibly can. And then when they go into their cutting phase, they know they're going to lose, lose some muscle. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, muscle size has a lot to be said for strength with muscle mass size. So, you know, I, I see a lot of holes, again, with nutrition. I mean, I feel like we find research and things that always surprise us when it comes to performance nutrition. So I'm not going to knock it entirely, but I do have a number of things that concern me about it. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't want an operator losing muscle mass or them to be dehydrated. Right. I'd be concerned about mental clarity. And I'd also be concerned about body fat percentage. So 11% is what's considered ideal because that gives you enough storage to work from when you're being deprived of food. Mm -hmm. So rangers, people who go through ranger school, if they um, lose too much body weight or dip below a certain percentage, statistically speaking, they're less likely to finish the school. Mm -hmm. They're going to end up dropping out because they're just not operating optimally. So I, I, I'm not going to knock it entirely. I'd love to see the research, but those are some answers or those are some questions that I would love to have answered and make me feel a little bit better about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, talking about bodybuilders, even when they're running that low carb, they're also running just a low energy diet as well. And really with the ketogenic diet, that's that's not really the case. So you, I mean, you could almost theorize that that energy availability would be there. Um, but I, I definitely think it needs to be researched more. I think at this point, I'm just not on board with it 100%. You know, but I, I would definitely be open to seeing more research come out. I think one of the things that we have to remember, too, is that these research studies, um, you know, nutrition doesn't exist in a vacuum. So like when we're when we're looking at studies like, you know, fat adaptation or, or, or just micronutrient things like vitamin D is a big one as well, too. And when I say research doesn't exist in a vacuum, you really have to look at all the factors. And I'm, you know, I'm just not convinced that you know, that that's kind of what happened in this case. Um, I'm also kind of yeah. of the mind that the study yeah. was a good study, but I think it was taken a little bit out of context. Um, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, which of know. course is very difficult when we get any kind of uh, nutrition research and the news gets a hold of it. It tends to be very taken out of context, mm -hmm. which is really unfortunate. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the study specifically talked about body composition. So when you say 11% is kind of like that sweet spot, you know, I just don't know. I just don't know where they're trying to take it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and kind of on that line of thinking about studying nutrition, um, Sigma Nutrition is a really great podcast that I listen to. It's um, sometimes the, the information is great. Sometimes it's a little dry, but um, the information is fantastic. It's very nerdy. 
Um, and there's some really interesting stuff that dietitians listen to on that podcast. And one of them is this, um, it's a lot of professionals from Europe. So I, I think he was from the UK and he was discussing the differences between studying nutrition versus the way we study everything else. You know, we can't study nutrition the way we study drugs. Mm -hmm. And the science, the current scientific method and um, uh, hierarchy of evidence works very well for drug studies, but it could be argued that we need a different hierarchy of evidence and criteria or the scientific method when it comes to nutrition because we can't isolate anything when it comes to or at least we it doesn't translate well to real world when we isolate nutrition right. and study it in that manner mm -hmm. so very interesting very wordy very at times dry but very very good information that'll definitely make you feel like you're in a few iq points once you finish it <laughs> Another road that we can kind of go down, and I know I've experienced this not with, you know, I haven't worked primarily with triathlete clients or anything like that, but just, um, you know, clients who are just trying to be active. And, you know, when you're talking about high level competition, like uh, a triathlon, and you're working with recreational triathletes, you know, trying to help them balance, you know, maybe their, their job and their kids and their personal life and their nutrition and um, you know, their training and, and a lot of those things can sometimes be barriers. So yeah. as a coach, kind yeah. of talk a little bit about how you, how you address that. Yeah. Well, especially something like triathlon for, um, more your ultra endurance, uh, length events, the time commitment is significant, especially in the later periods of training. I mean, you could be training an hour and a half to two hours, most days of the week, plus your long workouts on the weekend. So it can definitely, you know, a lot of things can interfere with that. Stress, work, family, any any kind of life event, illness can definitely interfere with a lot of that. So balance is um, something that it becomes an art when you're dealing with these kinds of athletes. And once an athlete gets stressed, um, their training, we're not going to get as much out of them. So what I tend to do is if I need to back off their training, whether it's the intensity or the duration, we'll do that. At a certain point, just consistency of being out there and getting that heart rate up and getting some form of training in is better than an athlete just being like, you know what, I can't give an hour. And athletes have a tendency to be very all or nothing, that if I can't complete this workout, I don't want to do it at all versus I'm just going to do part of it. So working with them to be like, hey, managing those expectations. Like, hey, you know what, can't do an hour, can't do 20 minutes. Like, can I at least get 20 minutes out of you? Um, and just keeping their, at least maintaining their fitness at that point. Mm -hmm. um, so understanding that balance that, and managing expectations for race, you know, hey, okay, this came up, let's just maintain your fitness until they get through this. Um, and then just let them focus on one area of their life that they do have control over. So um, I often start with sleep, which, you know, as a dietitian, you'd think that nutrition would be the very first thing that I'm like, don't let your nutrition fail. But actually, I start with sleep because they're going to, not recover very well, their hunger hormones, their recovery, stress hormones are all going to be out of whack if they're not getting enough sleep. Well, I try them, you know, if if your workout's going to interfere with your ability to sleep, let's get back on the workout and let's focus on that sleep so that everything else will kind of fall into place. And then once they feel good about that, then nutrition will be my next step, um, especially during periods of stress. Um, you know, we tend to reach for comfort foods. That's a high risk time to gain weight for an athlete, um, eat in a way that's not going to allow good recovery, that's not going to allow good performance. Um, 
but I would definitely start with sleep first once push comes to shove. Um, for general, like let's say just typical training, not really a stressed athlete, it's going to kind of depend on the athlete and what I know they can handle and what I know their priorities are. So if I have someone whose goal is to just finish and they're, you know, not a, I want to say not highly motivated because motivation is going to depend on their goal, but um, not a, uh, an athlete who's like really looking to make records or, you know, not very competitive, just I'm doing this recreationally. Um, I just really want to finish, you know, there's a lot more play there. There's a lot less of you have to do this workout at this, um, at this time and your nutrition is of the utmost importance. And there's a lot more flexibility with that type of athlete versus someone who's like, I, I want to get um, this big of a PR. I want um, to make it to this point in my age group. Like this, It just depends on the athlete, what we tend to focus on. Yeah, I, I agree 100% on the sleep uh, part as well. I mean, it, it's harder to make good decisions. It's harder to, to recover. Um, you know, everything just kind of less patience for sure. Um, tell me what is the oddest or the most unusual thing that you've encountered as a dietitian? Something that made you go, hmm, let's talk about that. You know, a couple things come to mind. I have a patient who once came to me and said she's going to do a juice cleanse for an entire month. I was like, what? <laughs> like, and I'm looking over these recipes. I'm like, there is zero protein in any of this. Mm-hmm. Like, you are going to have a real problem by the end of this. <laughs> yeah. That one was an instant. I see quite a bit of, like, orthorexia in my job. Oh. I mean, it's... Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest differences with the population that I work with is, um, so the service members have free access to me as well as their dependents, mm-hmm. so their spouses as well. It's a generally um, younger and healthier population than most dietitians would see outside the military. Um, so I, and this is one of the like, kind of grateful things about this position is that you do get to see these people because these are the kinds of people who, you know, probably aren't going to get a referral from a doctor and maybe don't have insurance covering their visits for something like um, orthorexia that I, I would guess it goes largely undiagnosed. People are not usually seeking help for this. Um, and they'll come to me with these these crazy food rules and fad diets and I can't eat this and I can't eat that for these reasons and I read this and so-and-so told me that and then now like, I'm eating just eggs and oatmeal and I don't know what to do anymore. And it's like, oh, Lord. <laughs> like, yeah. So those are... I got that a lot when I was working outpatient. Um, if people want to work with you, they're interested in contacting you, they have questions, uh, how can they find you? Um, Instagram or Facebook is or email are the three ways. So my Instagram is at Jess underscore Mora underscore RD. And then on uh, Facebook, it's at Jess Sports RD. And then to email me is JessMoraRD at gmail.com. And the kinds of people I'm looking to work with right now, I'm running an online um, group wellness program. So it's habits-based. Anybody can join. Um, They get uh, a monthly phone call with me so that we can discuss what it is that they're working on and give a little bit more information. I pop in daily and give them feedback. Um, So I'm looking for mainly, mainly people who are looking for wellness or weight loss for that kind of group. But then I'm also looking for athletes to work with 
specifically triathletes and especially beginners and females. Um, I would one of my business plans, something I'm really working on, is to really dig into the research and build enough experience that um, I can work with females specifically because training females is very different from training males. And mm -hmm. those of us who have dug into the research know that there's a lack of evidence for how training affects females differently from males. We Our hormonal cycles make it very difficult to study that. And so we tend to be excluded from a lot of studies for that reason. And so we don't even really have great data mm -hmm. on yeah. that kind of thing. So it's definitely a population that I would love to work with. So um, if there's an individual someone is aware of who's looking for a triathlon coach and sports dietitian, um, I would absolutely love to work with that person. I really appreciate you spending some time with us today and sharing your knowledge and your experiences. Um, I think your your path to where you are now has definitely been non-traditional. And I think if you're anything like me, you're really grateful for that because my path to where I am now was anything but traditional. Um, so thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. This is great. All right, guys, that was Jess. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I know I had a lot of fun recording with her, and I hope that she's going to come back soon and visit us. If you have comments or questions for Jess, myself, or any other guests that we've had on the podcast, make sure you leave a voice message by clicking on the link in our Instagram bio at performancerdpodcast. You can also email me, susan at performancerd.org. All right, guys, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our episodes that we've had so far, make sure that you share it with your friends, post it on your social media. Let's let people know that we're out there. And we will see you next time.